Hello, Duncan Green here on a Friday afternoon. Uh, the flowers are out. There's a magnolia out in front of my window. The two cats are sitting. I'm hoping they won't interrupt this podcast. Um, and I've got a, a week dominated by COVID-19, the coronavirus, to catch up on. Uh, so let's get on with it. Um, first up, the first post this week on From Poverty to Power was uh, the Links I Liked roundup of good social media. Absolutely full of coronavirus stuff in particular. And somebody's done a nice job on the flattening the curve graph, which shows that if you can actually flatten the curve and spread out the number of infections, you will allow medical systems to cope and reduce the number of deaths. She's turned the the, the, the tall, thin peak and the long, um, fat peak into two cats, one sitting up, one lying down, and calls it cattening the curve. It's one of those classic sort of ways to make people remember the curve, a bit like um, Branko Milanovic's elephant curve on inequality. So that was rather nice. Um, another one is that the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine is starting a MOOC on Monday in a couple of days um, on COVID-19. So if you want to get the word from the experts, the people who really understand epide epidemics and pandemics and the, the, the medical aspects of what's going on, sign up for that MOOC. There's plenty of plenty more on the coronavirus, both funny and serious uh, on, on links I liked. Um, the next up, I uh, reviewed a book by Thomas Boliki called Plagues and the Paradox of Progress. Um, and it's a kind of it's a fascinating history of disease. It reminded me a bit of uh, Jared Diamond, um, uh, Guns, Germs and Steel. And it's he does a history of disease. And it's like, a I mean, partly it's a germs eye view of history. And he gives this kind of great impression of germs celebrating when um, people moved from hunting and gathering into agriculture because they were therefore much closer together and um, disease could spread much more easily. And imagine how excited they were when people moved into urban settings and were even closer together. Um, but he also shows how fighting those germs lay at the heart of much of modern society, the construction of nation states, municipal uh, governments, um, mechanisms of control and cooperation, things like imagine how important safe water and sanitation are, both in terms of what they do for health and how they uh, you know, beat germs, but also how they bring people together and, and spawn institutions and cooperation. Um, then the next bit is about sort of the, the turning point after 1650, so it was 350 years ago uh, or more, when the the rise of disease in urban areas started to go back down because people started to create the institutions that would fight infectious disease. And this sounds a little bit odd, given where we are now, but he talks about how infectious diseases has almost ended as a source of death in rich countries. Well, OK, not quite, but um, over the long haul, yes. And the, the health concerns are now obesity, uh, cancer, things which are not non-infectious diseases. Right? Um, but in poor ones, something else has happened, which is that the technology uh, that's created and um, helped defeat uh, diseases elsewhere has been introduced. So you've got vaccinations, um, but the institutions lag. And so children survive in far greater numbers than ever before. But then what, it, what awaits them is not particularly great in terms of development, institutions, jobs, economy, income. So his final point of the book really is that, you know, there's a big challenge to the aid sector and others 
to bring the institutions up to speed and turn that uh, technological um, triumph against uh, infectious disease into something really worth celebrating. Um, <clears throat> next post was about uh, The Economist. So uh, I insist on reading The Economist every week, even though I don't always like what it says. Um, but one edition which I always enjoy is the issue that comes out the Thursday before International Women's Day. Somebody at The Economist is a sort of, sort of secret feminist and they slip in loads of articles. Well, maybe not so secret, but they don't make a big fuss about it being Women's Day. But they always sneak in some really interesting articles on women's rights and, and, and gender based issues. And this year, the big piece was a global survey on abortion, which really taught me a lot. I, I learned a lot from it. And it talks about beyond the horror stories and the scare stories and the horrible things we're seeing in countries like El Salvador, um, abortion is actually becoming more available and safer around the world. And that's for a number of reasons. One is government regulation is actually the vast majority of government regulations are making it more available, not less available. We tend not to read about the the ones that make it more available, the, the journalists focus on the bad news. Um, big shifts in technology, mainly around chemical abortions, abortion pills, which are becoming very available, especially one called misoprostol, um, becoming available globally by mail order, um, uh, easily, easily acquired and much safer than the horrible backstreet abortions that used to take place. And finally, better access to contraception means there are fewer unwanted pregnancies in the first place. And all that is leading to a real decline in many countries in uh, deaths and, um, uh, uh, and other health problems arising from abortions. Um, and that's all great, but I made the, you know, I took the precautionary measure of sending it to um, Fenella Porter, who's Oxfam, Oxfam's uh, Women's Rights and Gender Justice Director, just to see what she thought of it. And she said, yes, yes, we should be celebrating these things. They are advances, but there is a danger there, too. And the danger is that by saying, oh, it's OK, it's all been fixed by pills, you found a technological fix, which means we stop talking about um, abortion as a right uh, and, and as part of a much broader suite of sexual and reproductive health rights, which are under siege around the world in many ways. So she cautioned about getting too you know, celebratory. There's still a long way to go on that. Next up, there's a, a new website um, called Debating Ideas, run by the African Arguments website. I think it's, uh, it's looking very promising. And their first piece was by an anthropologist and Ebola expert called Paul Richards, who lives in Sierra Leone. And it was about <clears throat> what the COVID-19 response can learn from the successful Ebola response in West Africa in 2014-15, I think. Um, and his argument is that COVID-19 will require changes in behaviours at the family level, a bit like had to happen in Ebola for it to be got under control, especially that difficult trade-off we're all facing between protection of the elderly and social distancing, um, which is causing you know, a lot of people I know real dilemmas in terms of do they go and visit their mums and dads? How how do they visit their mums and dads? Do they take the grandkids to visit them? You know, lots of questions really we're all wrestling with. Uh, and the point that Paul made, because uh, through he, he wrote a really good book on Ebola, and um, and as an anthropologist, he went to try and find out what really happened on the ground. And he said lots of the answers that eventually led to the defeat of Ebola emerged from communities, but were initially resisted by the medical professionals. Um, 
for example, the, yeah, the, 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 the advice coming in was let's set up large field hospitals and bowler treatment centers. But those were shunned by the communities because they could see that people were going into these treatment centers and very few people were coming out alive. Um, they wanted to be close to their relatives. They, many of these places were in the wrong place. They wanted to do community care. So they started to set up community care uh, systems in spite of the advice of authorities and against their advice and often almost clandestinely. And they started to deliver results. And eventually there, there was a sort of dialogue and a, a lot more respect was given to the, pe- the people on the ground who were coming up with solutions. So Richard's, Paul Richards' very nice conclusion is that families need to think like epidemiologists, but equally epidemiologists need to think like families. So you've got to have, get that dialogue going quicker and not have a get out of the way, I'm a medical expert approach, which is not helpful. Finally, continuing on the COVID-19 theme, and I, I suspect that the blog is going to carry on talking about COVID-19 for quite a few, uh, certainly for a week or two. Uh, we'll see how it develops. But this was about by my go-to expert on all things to do with education, Prachi Srivastava at the University of Western Ontario. And Prachi uh, sent me a piece on COVID-19 and the global education emergency. She's done some number crunching and worked out that a minimum of 45%, of basically half, of the world's school-aged kids are already locked down and excluded from school because of responses to the virus. Half of the world's kids are, are, are not able to get to school. And that's a minimum. She says there's lots of suggestions that the figure could be substantially higher than that. And her argument that this is a huge education emergency. If kids lose out on their education, that's a generation that will be damaged in terms of their self-development, in terms of their job prospects, and it'll have a knock-on effect on the economy. So this is a really big medium and long-term challenge arising from the response to COVID-19. And she says the primary onus is on states to respond to this. She accepts that there can be private provision, but the states have to coordinate it and respond. And she's talking about things like alternative delivery. So can you deliver education without having face-to-face contact in schools? Equivalency for exams. So, okay, if you cancel the exams because you don't want all the kids in the same room, can you have equivalent um, marks or, or, or qualifications based on, for example, performance to date, you know, um, uh, teacher assessment and so on? If kids really miss out, can you learn from what's happened in some, some situations like Syria of having kind of crash course catch-up education methods to try and get them up to speed again? And then finally, there's a really big issue with equity because although you've got this global education crunch and global response, who is being left out and who is, is, is getting um, excluded by accident and omission probably as much as by intention? So, for example, kids who've got no internet access, if you move to alternative delivery online, what are you going to do about them? Special needs kids. How are you going to look after, how are you going to cater for their educational needs? Or will you just go back to excluding all those groups who've been very carefully brought in to education systems over the last you know, few years? And with that, I shall leave you. Sorry, it's not a more upbeat um, uh, set of blogs, but these are the times we live in. Stay safe.